Welcome to The Alchemical Mind, and this is part two of How to Know What's True. So if you haven't listened to part one yet, I recommend you go listen to part one so you understand kind of where we start to figure out whether the information that we are being given by someone or something is true or not. Now, of course, there's a much deeper philosophical discussion to be had about whether there is truth or not. We're not interested in that right now. What we're interested in is practical stuff. So in order to understand practicality and how to begin to understand all the information that's given out by experts, authorities, podcasters, YouTubers, authors, journalists, whatever, it's important to get down to the basics. And after studying the basics, we can make some assumptions about what can or cannot be true. And I'll make a statement about that at the end of this episode. Now, much of the discussion here is actually a summary of Carl Sagan's A Demon Hunted World. If you've never read it, I highly recommend it. Whether you are a materialistic person or you're a spiritual person or somewhere in between. Uh, you know, the book kind of centers on understanding scientific knowledge. But I do believe that much of the information in it can be applied to all kinds of subjects. Because to me, there's really no difference between the material and the spiritual. They're just different aspects of the same subject. So that's why we're taking it in that direction. Now for episode one, I kicked it off with a little snippet of the podcast episode that inspired this, uh, this particular series on how to discover what's true. And for this one, I'm actually going to relate a story from Carl Sagan's book. So the story is called The Fire-Breathing Dragon Lives in My Garage. It's a fantastic story. I'm just going to read right from the story. Uh, you can look this up for yourself and uh, determine if what I'm saying is true or not. So, A Fire-Breathing Dragon Lives in My Garage. The importance of the story is, of course, how to understand these philosophical fallacies that we're going to be diving into in this particular episode. A fire-breathing dragon lives in my garage. Suppose I seriously make such an assertion to you. Surely you'd want to check it out. See for yourself. There have been innumerable stories of dragons over the century, but no real evidence. What an opportunity. Show me, you say. I lead you to my garage. You look inside and see a ladder, empty paint cans, an old tricycle, but no dragon. Where's the dragon, you ask? Oh, she's right here, I reply, vaguely waving. I neglected to mention she's an invisible dragon. You propose spreading flour on the floor of the garage to capture the dragon's footprints. Good idea, I say. But this dragon floats in the air. Then you use an infrared sensor to detect the invisible fire. Good idea. But the invisible fire is also heatless. You'll spray paint the dragon and make her visible. Good idea. But she's an incorporeal dragon and the paint won't stick. And so on, I counter every physical test you propose with a special explanation of why it won't work at all. Now, what's the difference between an invisible, incorporeal, floating dragon who spits headless, heatless fire and no dragon at all? If there's no way to disprove my contention, no conceivable experiment that would count against it, what does it mean to say that the dragon exists? Your inability to invalidate my hypothesis is not at all the same as proving it true. Claims that cannot be tested, assertions immune to disproof, are veridically worthless. Whatever value they may have in inspiring us or in exciting a sense of wonder, what I'm asking you to do comes down to believing, in the absence of evidence, on my say-so. Alright, so this story is fantastic because it actually dives in to many of these 
philosophical fallacies that we're going to be diving into the episode. And, and the story is great. And sure, he uses a dragon in a garage for this particular tale. But there's, uh, there's actually a lot more to the story that we can gather. Because this is typically what all these charlatans on you know books and magazine articles, news articles, podcasts, videos, etc. Uh, try to bring you when they're just trying to push some agenda. And the point is, we have to be very weary, in particular when we're dealing with esoteric topics, when we're dealing with mystical topics, when we're dealing with religious experience, when we're dealing with some kind of knowledge beyond things that are easily proven through experimentation. And of course, if you're listening to this podcast, this is things that you're interested in. So you have to be particularly weary of those things, because... If you're not, you can easily abide by somebody else's saying. So you could be buying into total BS theories. I would say, for example, that Flat Earth is complete BS. If you're a Flat Earth, that's fine. That's your prerogative to be so. I think it's a nonsensical argument to state that the Earth is flat. But in your reality, maybe it is, and that's fine. Whether you decide that just because simply you're not putting in the effort to verify claims is a different story. So if you actually go through all the flat earth commentary on why the earth is flat and you find all those things make sense, you can reproduce them, whether through actual experimentation or through thought experiments, then that's fine. That's your reality. You believe those things to be true. Now some of you might automatically be thinking to yourself, how could you give, say, flat earthers the, the wherewithal to say, hey, yeah, the Earth is flat for you, that's fine. Uh, the Earth is not flat, it's round for me. Now, this gets into a much deeper argument that we probably will not get to on this episode, but we'll dive into in a later episode, in that there is actually no true objective truth. That's part of the problem with diving into knowing what is true and going through all these things to look for, these philosophical fantasy, fantasies, fallacies, these uh, word plays, because ultimately... It doesn't quite matter. If there was some kind of objective truth overall, then we could easily all have the same opinion. And we don't. We all have different opinions based on our life experiences, based on the things that we are raised in. That doesn't mean you can't change that paradigm, that worldview that you have. Obviously, that's true. I know that that's true because I've done it myself multiple times. And I would hope that if you listen to this podcast, you've done so yourself throughout your life. Now, it may have happened once, it may have happened twice, three times, four times, a dozen, two dozen times. It's irrelevant. But I would hope that if you were raised with a particular opinion, you do not still grasp onto that opinion as absolute certain fact, because that is true. That is not true. That is a fallacy in itself. If you feel like what was true to you 20, 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, is still true to you now, then in many respects, you haven't had growth. You haven't analyzed what it is that you truly believe. You're simply going off by what somebody else told you should be true. And we've talked about this many times. For those of you that have been with the podcast for many, many episodes, you know that I've talked about this uh, this idea of following a path and making your own path. It doesn't mean that the two will be different. When you make your own path, you may realize that the path that you are following is still your path. And that's totally acceptable. But we should always be analyzing these things. Because the only way to realize that you are it, this Tatavamasi idea that I mention at the end of every single episode, 
The only way for you to realize that is for you to experience it yourself. Direct experience is the only way to do it. And I hope by now, now that we were going a little bit more into Western mystical traditions like Hermeticism and Gnosticism, and we'll dive into many more, I promise. I hope we start realizing that this is not purely a, a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Taoist idea. That this is at the core of mystical experience to understanding what it is to be human. What does that mean? What does it mean to be you? You can easily have an idea of what it's like to be you, but is that your idea of being you? I talked a lot about this when I did my uh, solo meditation retreat episode. If you haven't listened to that, go by all means check it out. In which even just a couple days of absolute quiet being by yourself, doing nothing but meditating, contemplating, and just simply being, right? Having direct experience, not creating an experience around your life, but just simply life allowing it to create an experience for you. How much that can change your mind about a lot of things and how much it can cement some of the ideas that maybe you've already had into actual objects and how it can shape some of those objects into brand new objects that you can experience. And of course, every time I talk about objects, it doesn't necessarily mean a, a material, physical object in front of you that you can grasp in your hand. An object simply means something that has qualities that can be understood. That's what makes an object an object. So it can be a spiritual object, it could be a material object, it could be a thought object, a philosophical object, a religious object, it doesn't matter. The, the materiality of it is irrelevant. Now there's about 20 different philosophical fallacies that are mentioned in this book, I'm not going to go over all 20. In fact, I would say that we can probably condense many of these uh, together, and I will be doing so, particularly when we talk about statistics, because they simply play upon different aspects of a thing. Some of these may be familiar to you if you've ever taken a philosophy class or uh, a religion class, maybe. So you may be familiar with some of these arguments. If you know about the baloney detector test, you may be familiar with some of these arguments. And for some of you, some of this information will be completely new. So, as always, I'll go at a regular pace. If I'm going too fast for you, rewind it, listen again. Do your own research. If I'm going too slow for you, then great. You can skip this episode, maybe. Now, the important thing to remember about these is not only do we use these for determining whether things are true or not in science, but also within spirituality. Now, there's a couple more levels there because a lot of spiritual understanding a truth is very much personal as a result of direct experience but once you dive deep into it so is science and this is important of course because we have an election coming up here in the u.s uh, politics is generally a topic that i stray away from not because it's divisive and i want, don't want to get into arguments with people i don't care about that if i didn't want to get into arguments with people i wouldn't be doing a podcast on uh, spirituality religion philosophy because <laughs> in many respects that's very similar to talking politics right what's the saying you, there's two things you should never talk about is religion and, and politics in a dinner conversation but I don't generally talk about politics because to me it's politics are irrelevant I think politics are a one of those things that are not actuality but rather imagination things we create in order to explain away a particular point of view and I'm not saying that I'm an anarchist, although maybe in some ways, maybe I am. But again, that's putting a label to the thing. And that's, you know, when you put labels to things, you're not explaining the thing. You're simply creating a symbol of what the thing is. And as we always talk about, the map is not the territory. So the first fallacy is ad hominem. The Latin term means to the man. 
and that is attacking the person presenting the argument and not the argument itself. This is one of the most common things in politics in particular. That's why I brought up politics very briefly. And one of the reasons why, as I mentioned in part one of this series of how to know what's true, I did not specifically say who the, uh, the person speaking in the clip that I played was or what the podcast was and why I ended up recording the podcast episode a couple of times before coming up to the form in which I published. Because I didn't want any of this information that I was putting out to be a direct attack to any particular person or podcast in that particular example. Because that's, that's not what matters. That's not what matters. But we do fall into this trap very often. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about this last night. I'm going to be doing an episode on the Emerald Towers of Thoth fairly soon. Uh, it might take us a, a little bit, maybe another month before we get there. But I'm going to do an episode on it because it's a text that I find really fascinating. And and one of the reasons I wanted to do it is because I've been I've been seeing a lot about these uh, hermetic principles, people talking about hermetic principles. And, uh, and the principles that they use are directly from the Emerald Tablets, um, from the Law of One stuff. And, uh, you know, these particular rules that are being given out are not in hermetic texts especially not in the wording that is given in in those newer texts and that's not to say that there's any less meaning to it right it's not to say that the emerald tablets are not maybe a little a little hermetic surely they're inspired by hermeticism but we have to be very careful when presenting this evidence and thinking about doing this episode really got me thinking about a lot of things because, you know, oftentimes we may get into this thing where, you know, some people might say, well, the Emerald Tablets of Thoth, that's a, that's a modern text, right, written in the early 1900s. That's not an ancient text written by Hermes. Well, I mean, if you want to go in that direction, what's to say the Corpus Hermeticum is, is something written by Hermes? Or if you want to look at the Bible, do we say that the Bible was written by God? I mean... That's generally the argument, right? It's the Word of God. And some people say, well, it was, it was inspired by the Word of God. Okay, either way, we want to make sure we're not attacking the particular person that's presenting an argument, but simply attacking, or rather, trying to understand the information being presented. Is that information true? The person is relevant. The person's irrelevant. That's why I do so many different religious systems, philosophical systems on this podcast, and I don't stick to one thing. Because to me, it doesn't matter what the tradition is. I don't care if the Buddha said it or Jesus said it or Aleister Crowley said it, Zoroaster, whoever. It doesn't matter. What I'm after is the information, the knowledge, right? That's what we're doing this whole month-long plus segment on Gnosticism because I'm after the knowledge. And the people that present the knowledge are never going to be perfect. And of course, again, you could bring this argument of, well, it was written by Hermes or it was written by God or written by... Muhammad or whoever, the Buddha, that's going to be one of these philosophical fallacies that we'll get to. Actually, as a matter of fact, we'll start with the next piece of this. We should always just simply look at a piece of work based on that work. And even if it's a newer piece of work, like I mentioned, the Emerald Tablets, we shouldn't completely disregard it as either not part of a tradition or not being relevant to the tradition or not having something relevant to say. Because that's also a fallacy. And like I mentioned in, in the past episode, one of my favorite quotes from Plato is one that I can never remember, so I'll just paraphrase again. 
is that we never learn new information. We're just simply remembering previously discovered information. And of course, for you Buddhists and, and Hindus, that may be very familiar because that's kind of the way it works, right? If you have this giant universe-encompassing consciousness, it already knows all things because it is all things, right? It's all things and no thing, all names and no names. And so it already has all this knowledge, and if we're just aspects of that knowledge, then of course we never learn anything new. We just happen upon the information that was already there to begin with. So we're not creating anything. We're not inventing anything. We're just rediscovering the thing. We see this all the time in archaeology. You know, this is one of the things that I hate about uh, people that try to deny some of these interesting alternate history ideas about, say, for example, forgotten ancient civilizations or pre-Ice Age advanced civilizations. We discover knowledge that we lost all the time. That's why the Library of Alexandria has such a, a deep hold in the imagination, right? A place where all the books in the world are being held, where philosophers and scientists and alchemists and all kinds of people from all over the world gather to learn more things because that's where all the books are. That's where the knowledge is. And the library gets burned down. Those people dissipate. Maybe some of them keep the information. They, they start schools. They pass it on. But, you know, people can never truly keep a, a piece of information 100% correct from the way they learned it. There's always going to be a little bit of a change. Called the game of telephone. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it, right? You start, you give somebody a, a statement, and you secretly pass it around the room. And by the time it gets back to you, it's a completely different statement. Anyways, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. Unhabitum. So never attack the arguer. Just work on the argument. Is the argument true or not? That's very important. I would say it's probably one of the most important, right next to number two, which is an argument from authority. Again, if you've been listening for a while, I don't need to go over this with you. I did a three-part series, four-part series on why you are the ultimate authority, three-part series. Go back and listen to that. Argument from authority is one of the worst arguments of all for me. Again, particularly in spirituality, when we, we start having experience mystical experience of something more divine turn into dogma and used to hold on to power to make money for profitary gain monetary gain all these things really bother me and it bothers me within political institutions and educational institutions just institutions in general there's an argument to be made about the importance of institutions but also an argument to be made about the detriment that institutions can cause this is kind of very tricky, right? So let's take education, for example. For some, it might be a great thing that the government has you know, imposed a school system, made it mandatory at least to a certain age for people to attend school. I mean, it's great, right? They, they want to make sure that you know how to read. How, you know, so there's an argument to be made against it because obviously somebody has to pick the curriculum. And there's so many different traditions, so many different ways of looking at the world. You can't explain all of them, so you have to pick one. You have to make one that's kind of not being particular to a certain tradition, right? So you, know, you, you can't teach like creationism because that'll go against you know people that believe in science or people that are Hindus or Buddhists or Muslims. Even though I think there is a, a small sect of Muslim creationists, uh, which is interesting. So you have to kind of pick this more generic scientific method. And maybe that works for some and that doesn't work for some others. Ultimately, the goal of an educational institution is to 
raise people to be able to live and work and be productive members of society. So they have to teach certain things and not teach others. And this leads to conspiracies, of course, in which, you know, they, they only want to teach you the basics. They don't want to teach you the true history of humanity, etc., etc. That's fine. That may be true. It may not be true. I don't know. I haven't examined that yet. I have no direct personal experience of it. Aside from a couple things with my daughter, and I think I told this story before, where I've had to do, like, parent-teacher conferences. And, uh, you know, they wanted to put her on medication because she's, a, she's, she's disruptive. She's got ADD, ADHD. Uh, she's got to be on medication. And she's got to do this and the other. And I, you know, I would argue back and forth with them. And uh, you know, her mom would be present as well. Fortunately, she agreed with me. And and then I got this thing where, well, you know, we don't teach them to have free thinking. Basically, the point of them learning in elementary school is to learn how to take orders. And that kind of took me aback. Now that might not be a a overall feeling from some teachers. Maybe this teacher just so happened to be. Uh, an ex-marine, so maybe that's why she had this idea of this is the way that she was supposed to teach, and that's fine. But that doesn't work for everybody, right? So that's why there's kids that end up being put on medication that don't need to be put on medication because there's just no way to teach them the way that they need to be taught. And there are schools, of course, that teach things differently. We'll eventually talk about some of that when we talk about Rudolf Steiner, for example, came up with the Waldorf schools and, and different other educational traditions. But of course, the yumming from authority for me means nothing because, you know, what makes you an authority? We talked about this when we did the Gospel of Thomas, in which Jesus kind of like scolds all the, the disciples when he asks, like, who do you think I am? Because none of them quite get it right. Because to him, he's not an authority on any of these things. He's just a brother to these disciples. And they need to understand that. Now, the difference is he had more experience. And so, of course, he can tell stories. He can relate how the world works, but it doesn't necessarily make him a teacher or a philosopher or some authority, whatever, bishop, pope, something like that. That's why he got angry with them. They didn't understand what he was trying to say. The person isn't important. So if the person is not important, why assign a title to the person? We all have the same knowledge. We all have the same capabilities. We all have the same potential. We just use it in different ways. And I'm not saying there aren't authorities or experts. Of course there are. But we have to be very careful with how we assign that authority. Again, I don't want to dive super deep into this because I did a three-part series on just authority. So go back and find those. This is actually, since we've been talking a little bit about mystery schools, one of the few aspects of the mystery traditions that I'm a little weary of is this argument from authority, where the traditions, the mystery traditions are passed down and uh, in specific ways, too. For example, in, in the Taoist schools, and this is not exclusive to them, this, this is also happening in Western schools and other Eastern schools, you have, you have your teacher, you have the Taoist teacher, and you have the students. And of course, they're all learning about the mysteries. But there's always the one student that's picked apart from the rest that's given special knowledge. So even within mystery traditions, you have... The mysteries being given to a group, but then a specific person being singled out that gets the true meaning of the mysteries. Not only do you get the meaning of the mysteries, you get the true meaning of the mysteries. And this happens down the line. Now I understand the need for some of this, because of course some people, even though they may be in the mystery school, they may not be particularly ready to accept the full pleroma, the fullness of the knowledge. 
And so one person is picked as kind of the exemplar of what that knowledge is to be. But then again, this creates this authority, an authority figure. But in some case, again, I understand it's necessary. All right, number three, ad aggregment from adverse consequences. This is kind of one that's worded a little bit weirdly, um, but it's one that we do all the time. I think in particular when it comes to religious and philosophical studies. So the example given here is, for example, God meeting out punishment and reward must exist because if he didn't, society would be much more lawless and dangerous, perhaps even ungovernable. So this is kind of presenting something in order to explain away particular aspects of another thing. So in this example, there has to be a God that punishes people that are bad, because if that being did not exist and did not bring such punishment, people would be lawless. Society would be dangerous. There would be chaos out there. This is one of the arguments that I love in politics in particular. We're seeing this already uh, in, in the election period, even though I guess – I mean I guess it's already kicked off, right, officially? Oh, well, you know, if you vote for this person, then America's going to be lawless. They're going to get rid of the, the police force. There's going to be no police. And of course, that's a preposterous argument. But we see this kind of thing a lot. We do see this kind of thing a lot, in particular within spiritual circles. And of course, this goes along with the second part, with the argument from authority in many regards, because this is part of the, the arguments given, in particular, we'll say, when Christianity was spreading across the globe and other cultures were being colonized. And it's something that we still see, I would say, in particular within the Catholicism, where if you don't do things right, if you don't do the right thing, if you don't follow the rules that are established, when you die, you're going to go to hell. You're going to live in eternal hellfire. You're going to be burning for all of eternity. And of course, that may work in that particular point of view of what God is. But if you ascribe to something a little grander, I would say, a little more all-encompassing, a little more non-dualistic, and this applies, of course, in some respects to the Gnostics as well, you find that kind of view to be a little preposterous. Because why would God take pleasure in punishment? This is why the Gnostics see the Demiurge as the creator of the material world, and then the one above all, the source, as the one true God, out of which all things emanated. Number four, appeal to ignorance. Now, this is one of those things that's kind of weird, and we do this all the time as well, is, is making a claim and stating it to be true because it has not been proven false, or the other way around, saying that something is false because it has not been proven true. Now, this is one of those arguments that we can probably spend a dozen episodes on. And I'm not going to do that, but we probably could, because this is kind of the basis for epistemology, for the, the study of knowing and understanding knowledge. For one, we can never know everything to be true, because then we'd have to take every single little bit of thing that we can experience in the universe and experiment on it to determine its truthiness. I love the word truthiness. I think of the Stephen Colbert thing because it's like almost true, right? It's a, a statement that is true, but not ultimately true, truthiness. But appeal to ignorance is tough because the only way for us to really understand anything to be true is to direct experience it through some kind of experiment or direct experience as in being in front of it and seeing it to be true. 
And how can we do that when the universe is infinite? It's impossible. And if you want to look at this in a more practical way even than that, we do this every second of every day. Because you see, when you are making your decisions, your brain kind of forms this, this, this core, this web of ideas that, that make the core of its decision-making architecture, which allows you to make decisions every single second of every single day without knowing every single aspect, characteristic, outcome of that event. Because the only way for you to make the 100% true, correct decision involves you knowing all the variables, every single element that's involved, every single outcome that's involved, and what happens, what, what the outcomes are of those outcomes. And of course, it's impossible because then you would quite literally be God. And so you do the best you can. Your brain does the best it can. Now, I've been known to make fun of the brain. Again, I'm still going to do this while brains don't exist thing. It's going to be uh, hilarious, I think, for many of you. I don't want to knock on the brain, of course. The brain is important in some regards to our everyday understanding and our survival in this particular aspect of the world. So in some respects, we kind of have to appeal to ignorance because we can never have all this information. But we need to be very careful of how we do that. We can use this as kind of a map as long as we understand it's not a territory. You get that? We can take a statement to be true in order to figure out an outcome to an event. Of course, ultimately, it doesn't matter. And this is why some of the things that we find invaluable to ourselves, like you know, free will and things like that, are just complete fallacies. So it's all just one giant event unfolding all at once. Now, let's leads us to the next argument, which is special pleading. This is one that we have to be especially careful when dealing with esoteric, mystical, philosophical, religious concepts and topics. Special pleading. Because you can easily explain something away through special pleading. Now, in some regards, you kind of will at some point end up with special pleading regardless of what you're doing. Whether it's religious studies, philosophical studies, or scientific studies. Because otherwise, you end up getting turtles all the way down. And at some point, we need to figure out at what turtle do we stop. However, some of the arguments here, I mean, they're kind of nonsensical anyway, right? And say, well, we'll use the example again. How can God be good if he inflicts punishment on people physically and in the afterlife? And you can just kind of explain, explain it away. Well, you don't understand the, the nature of God. Or you can say, oh, well... That's because the God you're worshiping is not the true God. There's a God above that God. Okay, so you have to be very careful with the special pleading. You do it all the time. I do it all the time. But at some point, we kind of have to get to that point. Because we can never explain it all the way because we just can't ever know all the things. Which leads us to begging the question or assuming the answer. Now, begging the question, again, it's kind of one of those interesting philosophical fallacies that we do all the time. In which we kind of bring in the idea that we're trying to prove as part of the question. So one of the more common ones for this would be uh, something with the Bible, you know, like, uh, well, you shouldn't do this because the Bible says so. And the Bible's true because God wrote it. Or in a related way, you can take this with statistics. We'll talk about statistics here in a few. You can say, well, I was going to use a, a coronavirus example. Let's not do that. I don't want to get involved with that either. Uh, let's do the death penalty. That seems a little more... Uh, <laughs> a little less controversial than 
coronavirus. If we have uh, if we have the death penalty, then people uh, won't uh, want to commit murder. I mean, it seems like an argument that would make sense, right? But are the two necessarily intertwined is the question we need to ask. Or are we kind of playing loose with the argument? This is kind of related to observational selection, to the circular thinking, circular, circular rationality. Because, you know, in observational selection, you're, you're choosing to take kind of part of this argument. This is something that's done with, with statistics a lot. I think, as a matter of fact, there's a book, uh, something to the effect of you can, how to lie with statistics, that's what it's called, how to lie with statistics. Because statistics are just providing some information, but the way you interpret that information could be done any number of ways. Just like you can come up with any, you know, different uh, systems based on how you, uh, which part of the elephant that you touch, whether you touch the trunk or the legs or the ears or the tail, etc. If you're not familiar with the, the story of the elephant, then uh, by all means look that up. I think actually I talked about it in one of the episodes previously. You do this a lot with statistics. Statistics are kind of weird because you can, you can make them say whatever you want. And some of them don't necessarily mean like what you think it means. And sometimes they can be misconstrued. A misunderstanding of the nature of statistics is another one of this. So I'll give you an example of one that kind of encompasses all these statistical fallacies and circular arguments into one. So I remember hearing a long time ago that one in ten people was gay. Okay? One in ten people was gay. I also remember hearing a long time ago that one in ten people is left-handed. So of course, by extension, if I take these two statements to be true and I combine them together, I could very easily say all left-handed people are gay. Because if one in ten people is left-handed and one in ten people is gay, then you can easily say these are all the same people. So if you're left-handed, you're gay. If you're gay, you're left-handed. You see how I'm playing around with the statistics? You see how I'm playing around with the understanding of how these things work? Because if we don't know how they work, then we can't make true statements on it. And you come up you know, with, with garbage information, like the clip that I presented in the previous episode, about the, the etymology of, of darkness coming from this adrenochrome and Roman history thing. It, ridiculous. Preposterous. And of course, these are kind of more egregious ways of looking at more egregious statements to be had. There's some that could be a little more, I guess we'll say, a little less malevolent, a little less misinformed. And that would be something like... Um, I don't know. You can take a look at, let's say, Edward Casey. I like Edward Casey, actually. Some people believe he was uh, predicting the future. Some did not, right? We have this all the time, Nostradamus and stuff. I remember Nostradamus was huge in the 90s. There were specials all the time because the year 2000 was coming up and the role was going to end then. Some people really love Casey, at least in ultimate circles, because they like this whole idea of, of resurrection, of multiple lives, of uh, you know finding this secret knowledge on the, the the pyramid or the Sphinx, of uh, Atlantis being in this particular spot uh, in the ocean. I think of the Bahamas, if I'm not mistaken, the Bimini Road and all that. That's all part of Atlantis. And people like these subjects. I I like to study Casey more on how he thinks that said he thinks he said and and why he said them, and how they relate to other information and how it's influenced some thought because you got to think about this too right i i would love for atlantis to be true i would love for aliens to be true i would love for unicorns to be true and santa claus and so of course i go and dive into these subjects to try to determine 
or is it feasible at least that they could be true? And sometimes you have to wonder like how much of the information that you receive currently is inspired by other people from previously that maybe have tainted the point of view of the presenter and therefore tainting your point of view on the subject. How much of it is directly being taken from somebody else and just brought up to a modern sensibility? Again, we can go back to this thing of there's no new ideas, right? We're just simply remembering all ideas. But in, in a modern culture that you know we have so much access to knowledge, if you want to find the knowledge, you will find the knowledge. Okay? You may not get it in school, at least not practical understanding of, of what it is that you are, right? You, you'll get knowledge on how to survive in, in modern society. But if you want to get into the mystical, into the esoteric, into alternate views on history and all that kind of stuff, you can easily find it on the internet. But that's why we're doing these two episodes on how to know what's true. Because how do you know what's true? And that's simply manipulation of other information that may not have been factual. So I could easily say, well, yes, I 100% believe Edgar Cayce's uh, dreams were actual memories, either of past lives or future lives. And in that case, whoever bases their ideas on what Edgar Cayce say must also be true, as long as they abide by the same message that Cayce did. You can go that direction. Or you can say, well, I think Edgar Cayce's full of baloney. And therefore, anybody that bases their idea of, let's say, Atlantis on what Casey had to say about it, is also full of baloney. Now, is there somewhere in between? Is there some knowledge to be gathered from Casey? Is there some knowledge to be gathered from somebody that came in after Casey? Or somebody that has never read Casey? Because some of these ideas do kind of jive together, right? There could be people that have never read Edgar Casey that come up with the same idea of what Atlantis was, where it was, when it was, etc. And then you can start taking some of these fallacies, running the information through them, trying to pick some of these out. You can start going through the toolkit, which we did kind of in, in part one, the, the different ways to determine how information can be true, and start picking them out. Well, you know, these things all start to correlate with each other. So then that thinks to be true. Now, if you're more scientifically minded, you might think, well, that's stupid. That's, that's not scientific. But science does the exact same thing, because generally the scientific knowledge is more of a consensus than actual fact. That's why you have people redoing experiments to try to make sure that the outcome of the previous one was true. But isn't it interesting that even when you redo experiments, sometimes you get different conclusions. And why is that? I mean, you can have different explanations for this. If you want to go with something a little more woo-woo, a little more new agey, a little more alternative, you can say that it is literally because of the fact that whatever the observer is putting into the observation is going to directly influence the outcome. And now, yes, in some respects, that is kind of what science states in terms of quantum physics. But in a more practical sense, it doesn't apply to everyday observations, right? This applies more to the microscopic when you're looking at the quantum level. And that's why I say this is generally regarded as more of a woo-woo, new-agey explanation, because the New Age movement has kind of gravitated towards this point of view on how these things work. But in many respects, it is true, because the observation and the observer are so closely tied together that they're not a separate object. They are one. They are one and the same. You cannot have an observation without an observer. Now, this, of course, leads you into some interesting ideas, like, you know, there's that 
age-old saying, if uh, if a bear craps in the woods, uh, can anyone smell it? <laughs> I guess it's not the age-old one. The age-old one is, uh, if a tree falls in the woods, will anyone hear it? And the answer is technically no, because you have to have an observer observing that observation. So if there's no one there to observe the tree falling and making a sound, there is no sound. Now this might be counterintuitive, and you could kind of explain it away. You can say, of course there is a sound being made when the tree falls. Just because I'm not there to hear it fall doesn't mean it's not making a noise. And you, you, know, you can do an experiment. You can set up a camera, put the camera there, and say, hey, look, the tree fell and it made a sound. And of course it did, because the camera then becomes the observer. And if the camera weren't there, then there would still be an observer there to observe it. But we don't know what the actual observation would be. Right. So if another uh, obviously there's other trees there, it's it's the forest, there's grass there, there's animals. But do they observe it the same way we observe it? Obviously not, because those things have different senses and sense things differently than we would. And even we as humans observe things differently because we come to an observation based directly on our own personal experience. And our experiences are all different. Otherwise, we would just all be the same person. I love how so often we get so bogged down by, you know, make, making things so complicated. And we talked a little bit about this in part one of this episode series of how to know what's true and how usually the simplest answer is always the best answer, right? Occam's razor. But even that's hard to determine what is the simplest answer because for what maybe the simplest answer for me might be a, a very complicated answer for you. Maybe the simplest answer for how the pyramids were built was that there were, you know, 100,000 people working for 20 years with cranes and whatever levers and pulling ro rocks with ropes. That might be a simple answer for you. But maybe if I get really woo-woo, the simplest answer for me is uh, telepathic Egyptian priests, right? They moved them with their mind. That's a very simple answer. That's much simpler than having to build all this stuff and getting all these resources together. doesn't mean either answer is true. And we focus so much on trying to figure out what the true answer is, then we forget that it doesn't really matter, that the thing is there. But we're curious, right? Humans are curious. We want to know where we come from, how these things came to be. And ultimately, I think what we find in mysticism is that the answer of how those things came to be is not really important. The importance is using the fact that we are to live a happy existence, to live a fulfilling existence. Because when we try to find answers to questions that we will never know a true answer to, we fall into issues. We get depression, we get anxiety, we feel like our life isn't worth anything, it leads to suicide, leads to other mental illnesses. And for what? Did you ever think about any of these things? Because the mystical explanation for a lot of these things is the simplest answer. That is Occam's Razor. When we accept that we could just live in the moment and take this all as it is, that is the answer. That is the meaning of life. Not all this other minutia that we focus on. Now, I am going to wrap up this episode here. There's a few other philosophical fallacies that I didn't touch upon. Uh, for example, uh, you know, confusing long-term and short-term. Uh, you have the idea of the slippery slope. Uh, you have uh, straw man arguments. Those are one of my favorites. Half-truths. These are kind of big right now, right? With... Uh, especially in politics during an election season. Half-truths are very commonplace. And, uh, and weasel words. Weasel words. I love weasel words. There's a fantastic comedy bit from George Carlin about weasel words. 
And I'm actually going to end this episode with the skit of Josh Carlin talking about weasel words because it is absolutely fantastic. And it goes along with a lot of the things we're saying. So we're going to end it there. Without further ado, here's George Carlin. I don't like words that hide the truth. I don't like words that conceal reality. I don't like euphemisms or euphemistic language. And American English is loaded with euphemisms because Americans have a lot of trouble dealing with reality. Americans have trouble facing the truth. So they invent the kind of a soft language to protect themselves from it. And it gets worse with every generation. For some reason, it just keeps getting worse. I'll give you an example of that. There's a condition in combat most people know about it. It's when a fighting person's nervous system has been stressed to its absolute peak and maximum, can't take any more input. The nervous system has either snapped or is about to snap. In the First World War, that condition was called shell shock. Simple, honest, direct language. Two syllables, shell shock. Almost sounds like the guns themselves. That was 70 years ago. Then a whole generation went by and the Second World War came along and we, the very same combat condition was called battle fatigue. Four syllables now, takes a little longer to say, doesn't seem to hurt as much. Fatigue is a nicer word than shock. Shell shock. Battle fatigue. <laughs> then we had the war in Korea, 1950. Madison Avenue was riding high by that time and the very same combat condition was called operational exhaustion. <laughs> hey, we're up to eight syllables now. And the humanity has been squeezed completely out of the phrase. It's totally sterile now. Operational exhaustion. Sounds like something that might happen to your car. <laughs> then, of course, came the war in Vietnam, which has only been over for about 16 or 17 years. And thanks to the lies and deceit surrounding that war, I guess it's no surprise that the very same condition was called post-traumatic stress disorder. Still eight syllables, but we've added a hyphen. And the pain is completely buried under jargon. Post-traumatic stress disorder. I'll bet you if we'd have still been calling it shell shock, some of those Vietnam veterans might have gotten the attention they needed at the time. I'll bet you that. I'll bet you that. But it didn't happen. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons is because we were using that soft language, that language that takes the life out of life. And it is a function of time. It does keep getting worse. Give you another example. Sometime during my life, sometime during my life, toilet paper became bathroom tissue. I wasn't notified of this. No one asked me if I agreed with it. It just happened. Toilet paper became bathroom tissue. Sneakers became running shoes. False teeth became dental appliances. Medicine became medication. Information became directory assistance. The dump became the landfill. Car crashes became automobile accidents. Partly cloudy became partly sunny. Motels became motor lodges. House trailers became mobile homes. Used cars became previously owned transportation. <laughs> room service became guest room dining. And constipation became occasional irregularity. 
When I was a little kid, if I got sick, they wanted me to go to the hospital and see the doctor. Now they want me to go to a health maintenance organization or a wellness center to consult a health care delivery professional. Poor people used to live in slums. Now the economically disadvantaged occupy substandard housing in the inner cities. And they're broke. They're broke. They don't have a negative cash flow position. They're fucking broke. Because a lot of them were fired. You know, fired, management wanted to curtail redundancies in the human resources area. So many people are no longer viable members of the workforce. Smug, greedy, well-fed white people have invented a language to conceal their sins. It's as simple as that. The CIA doesn't kill anybody anymore. They neutralize people. Or they depopulate the area. The government doesn't lie and engages in disinformation. The Pentagon actually measures nuclear radiation in something they call sunshine units. Israeli murderers are called commandos. Arab commandos are called terrorists. Contra killers are called freedom fighters. Well, if crime fighters fight crime and firefighters fight fire, what do freedom fighters fight? They never mention that part of it to us, do they? Never mention that part of it. And some of this stuff is just silly, we know, we all know that. Like on the airlines, they say they want a pre-board. Well, what the hell is pre-board? What does that mean? To get on before you get on? They say they're going to pre-board those passengers in need of special assistance. Cripples! Simple, honest, direct language. There's no shame attached to the word cripple that I can find in any dictionary. No shame attached to it. In fact, it's a word used in Bible translations. Jesus healed the cripples. Doesn't take seven words to describe that condition. But we don't have any cripples in this country anymore. We have the physically challenged. Is that a grotesque enough evasion for you? How about differently abled? I've heard them call that differently abled. You can't even call these people handicapped anymore. They'll say, we're not handicapped, we're handicapable. <laughs> these poor people have been bullshitted by the system into believing that if you change the name of the condition, somehow you'll change the condition. Well, hey, cousin, <laughs> doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. We have no more deaf people in this country, hearing impaired. No one's blind anymore, partially sighted or visually impaired. We have no more stupid people. Everybody has a learning disorder. <laughs> or he's minimally exceptional. How would you like to be told that about your child? He's minimally exceptional. Oh, thank God for that. <laughs> Psychologists actually have started calling ugly people those with severe appearance deficits. It's getting so bad that any day now I expect to hear a rape victim referred to as an unwilling sperm recipient. <laughs> and we have no more old people in this country. No more old people. We shipped them all away and we brought in these senior citizens. Isn't that a typically American 20th century phrase? Bloodless lifeless. No pulse in one of them. A senior citizen. 
But I've accepted that one. I've come to terms with it. I know it's here to stay. We'll never get rid of it. That's what they're going to be called. So I'll relax on that. But the one I do resist, the one I keep resisting, is when they look at an old guy and they'll say, Look at him, Dan. He's 90 years young. <laughs> Imagine the fear of aging that reveals. To not even be able to use the word old to describe someone. To have to use an antonym. And fear of aging is natural, it's universal, isn't it? We all have that. No one wants to get old, no one wants to die, but we do. So we bullshit ourselves. <laughs> I started bullshitting myself when I got to my 40s. As Soon as I was in my 40s, I'd look in the mirror and I'd say, well, I, I guess I'm getting older. <laughs> older sounds a little better than old, doesn't it? Sounds like it might even last a little longer. <laughs> bullshit, I'm getting old. And it's okay, because thanks to our fear of death in this country, I won't have to die. I'll pass away. <laughs> or I'll expire like a magazine subscription. <laughs> if it happens in the hospital, they'll call it a terminal episode. The insurance company will refer to it as negative patient care outcome. And if it's the result of malpractice, they'll say it was a therapeutic misadventure. I'm telling you, some of this language makes me want to vomit. Well, maybe not vomit. Makes me want to engage in an involuntary personal protein spill. Thank you all. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Alchemical Mind, part two of How to Know What's True. I hope you take some of these ideas and kind of think about some of the things that you believe, some of the things you hear about, some of the stories you hear about, some of the science you read into, some of the philosophical and, and mystical texts that you read, and apply them to your life in order to determine what is true. Of course, you can find me on Twitter, at MindAlchemical. You can email Martin at The Alchemical Mind. And as always, remember that you are it.